Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, it is, it is so true that we, we struggle in many ways. We see opposition and, and adversity, brokenness, corruption, evil on every side. And it is easy for us to become disturbed in our spirits, to become vexed, to question where is our God? Where is the the triumph of our God in Christ? How can you endure these things? How can you tolerate the evil and high-handed rebellion? How long, O Lord? And Father, it is a good and a needful reminder for us to have to consider again that Christ does reign, that you have triumphed over all the rulers and authorities, powers, dominion. In the world that we know and and in the unseen spiritual realm behind the rulers of this age, you are the sovereign Lord. And I pray, Father, that even as we consider again this theme of imprecation, that you will capture our hearts, that you will inform our minds, that you will help us to think rightly about what it is to seek the destruction of of enmity, to seek the undoing of your enemies and our enemies. Pray for your leading. Pray that you would strengthen us. Pray that you would encourage us. Pray that you would nurture in us the mind of Christ. That you would be honored, not just in this time, but in the lives that we live. And that we too, as those who've gone before, would finish well. We ask all these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we've been in the middle of a series on the Psalms, and I've tried to lay the foundational understanding that the Psalms, as being the center, or at least at the center of Israel's worship, and expressing Israel's sonship, the Psalms really can be known as or were referred to as songs of sonship. They were composed as songs to be sung in Israel's worship, but reflective of, expressive of, communicating even in their relationship with God, the glories, the difficulties, the challenges of, of their sonship. 
And as part of that sonship and part of the way the Psalms address Israel's sonship, we considered last time this theme of imprecation or what's often called the imprecatory Psalms. Imprecatory having to do most generally with, with the calling down of a curse or, or a, a hoping for punishment, a, a calling on powers or authorities in some sense to deal with evil. And we saw that uh, imprecation is a central theme in the Psalms. And if that's the case, then imprecation rightly understood, and that's key, rightly understood, is a key aspect or was a key aspect of Israel's worship. Imprecation rightly understood is a key aspect of Israel's worship. And we struggle with that, and I've had many people ask me through the years, what do we do with the imprecatory psalms? Should we pray in that way? Should we think in that way? What should we do with them? How should we understand them? And as I said last time, I think that a primary reason for that struggle is the way we think about imprecation. We think of it as, again, calling on the deity or God or, you know, some powers to arise and to deal with everything that afflicts us or everything that oppresses us, our enemies, our adversaries. It's essentially seen in people's minds as uh, calling on God to be our bodyguard and, and to come and to deliver us from the things that oppress us or that afflict us. And we say, well, is that really how God would want me to pray? As if he's my bodyguard, sick him. You know, this person's driving me nuts. So God, you need to sick him and deal with him on my account. But we saw last time, and again three weeks ago, and those of you who didn't listen to that message, I'd encourage you to do so because it will help to even inform what we're going to talk about today. But we saw that imprecation is a dimension or an aspect of lament. Scripturally understood, imprecation is an aspect of lament. Not, again, lament as sadness or dissatisfaction, unhappiness because of personal circumstances, life not looking the way we think it ought to look, but lament as eschatological angst. And I, I used that phrase last time. And what I mean by that is the, the burden, the longing, the groaning in the heart that recognizes and looks to and longs for the accomplishment of all that God has promised and purposed. Lament, as again, woven through all of the Psalms, is oriented towards a longing for God to arise and do what he says he's going to do, to ultimately put all things right. It's not just dissatisfaction with our personal circumstances. Lament is eschatological angst. It looks for and longs for the work of God, the renewal, the restoration, the purging that he has promised. And so we saw last time that that means lament is as much a Christian aspect of worship as it was for Israel. If the Psalms were, the, were a centerpiece in Israel's worship and lament was 
I arguably the primary theme woven through the Psalms, then lament was fundamental to Israel's worship. But it's also fundamental to our worship. Why? Because we too are characterized by eschatological angst. We too are longing for God to put all things right. For God to complete this work that he has done. And if that's the case, then the implication is that we too are an imprecating people. But in a certain sense. If imprecation is the way in which or a way in which lament expresses itself. And if we too are a lamenting people then we are also an imprecating people. And that means also that imprecation, rightly understood, is a key aspect of our worship, just as it was for Israel. But in a certain sense, in a certain sense. And so if we misunderstand what imprecation is as a scriptural principle, then what we think it is and the way we express it is actually a form of idolatry. It's nothing more than using God or seeking for God to become the instrument of our self-seeking, our agenda, what we think it ought to look like, how we think it ought to play out. Imprecation in in the way that the scripture understands it is critical to worship in any other form. It is idolatry. But there's also an important question that arises from this, which is, is imprecation as we understand it, as we practice it, as it is central to our worship, as it expresses our lament, is it the same as it was for Israel? In other words, put it this way, can we simply take the imprecatory psalms and own them for ourselves as written? Can we pray them as written? Do we stand in same relation to imprecation as the psalmist, the Israelite psalmist did? If not, why not? If not, why not? What has changed? What is different in the way that we do this thing called imprecation compared with the way that it functioned in Israel's life? And maybe a a more kind of narrow or concentrated way to put that, a more focused way to put that, is how should we understand and relate to this idea of imprecation as we see it in the scriptures calling for judgment against our enemies, if you will, in the light of Jesus' instruction about sonship. Because remember, again, the Psalms were written as expressing, grounded in Israel's sonship and central to its worship as the children of God. What do we do then with Jesus' instruction about sonship that we find in the Sermon on the Mount? We're all probably familiar with this passage. He he said, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. 
Pray for those who persecute you. In order that you may be sons of your father. In order that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Because he acts in that way. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends his reign on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax gatherers do that? Tax gatherers were probably one of the most despised group in Israel. They had betrayed their own countrymen by becoming servants of Rome, extracting and extorting money from their own people for the sake of their own profit and the Romans' profit. Tax gatherers even do that. And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Don't even the Gentiles, those outside of the household of Israel, the pagans, those who don't know the God of Israel, don't even they do the same thing? You are to be complete or perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What do we do with that? Jesus gave that instruction not to the church. He gave it to Israelites. Doesn't mean it doesn't apply to the church, but that instruction was given to the children of Israel. Does that imply then that imprecation in the psalm simply expresses the psalmist's own personal orientation and that in a sense it's contrary to what God would have? Because the psalmists are expressing a longing for God to arise and deal conclusively, aggressively with their enemies. And Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And we can't say, well, that was his instruction to Christians. This was Israel's instruction or Israel's, you know, dynamic of ethic in in the Psalms because Jesus is speaking to Israelites. So does that then call into question the imprecatory Psalms as authentic worship? Does it call into question their inspiration? You see, there are a lot of questions that this raises if we're really going to do justice to it. And I would argue, and this is what I want to deal with today, that all of these sorts of questions, and I've been asked them many times through the years, all of these sorts of questions are answered when we understand imprecation scripturally. When we see it through the lens of the salvation history and what has come in Jesus himself. Even reading this section from Matthew within the Sermon on the Mount, it has to be viewed in that sort of a way. So Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. I don't want to go down this path very far, but in certain traditions in Protestantism, it's held that what Jesus is doing is saying, the rabbis have wrongly taught you, but let me take you back to the Torah as it actually was. In other words, what Jesus is doing with all of these, you've heard it said, but I say, you've heard it said, but I say, is he's saying the rabbis have taught you error. Let me get you back to Moses. Let me get you back to pure Torah. Let me get you back to a faithful understanding of the law. And so, in effect, what Jesus is doing is reaffirming the law of Moses as given. 
Now, I would argue, and you can go back and listen to the series on the Sermon on the Mount, that you cannot understand it in that way without some very serious problems. And that would be the case here. Jesus recognized that his teaching was different from the Jews' traditional understanding of how they were to view and relate to their enemies. Loving neighbors, hating enemies. Loving neighbors, hating enemies. And as I said, often it's taught, well, he's just simply getting them back to what the law really taught. The rabbis had taught them falsely. But the truth is that Israel's Torah, Israel's law, did indeed teach hatred for enemies in a certain sense. As it dealt with this principle, and as, even as it dealt with the principle of brotherly love. But if you look at who was the neighbor in Israel's Torah, in Israel's law, it was one's fellow Israelite or Gentile proselytes, or the God-fearing alien who dwelt among the people. So it was those who were within, if you will, who were within the boundaries of the covenant community. That was who the neighbor was. And Israel's Torah, not just strictly the law of Moses, but certainly the Pentateuch, was very clear about who constituted Israel's enemies. They were all those who, in any sense, contradicted or opposed, resisted the God of Israel, his purposes, his word, his kingdom, his covenant people. Israel's enemies were those who were enemies of God's kingdom and God's purpose, God's will and work. So the Torah didn't specific, if you look for a verse that says, you shall hate your enemies in Israel's law, you can't find it. But what you do see is explicit instruction over and over and over again that God gave to Israel that they were to destroy their enemies or subjugate them at the least. And they were to utterly uh, disassociate themselves with those who were enemies of the covenant and its kingdom. This is one of the things that causes people to stumble with the Old Testament, is they say the God of Israel is different than the Jesus of the New Testament. Because he's telling them, go in and slaughter these people. Don't leave anyone alive. So while you can't find a verse that says you shall hate your enemies... It was very clear in Israel's Torah that they were to treat the enemies of the kingdom, the enemies of God, the enemies of his covenant people with the most severe kinds of treatment. At the very least, having nothing to do with them, their culture, their practices, to the extent that those enemies inhabited or were present in the covenant land, they were to conquer them and subjugate them and even destroy them. So to say the law never said you shall hate your enemies is really a simplistic mis misunderstanding. That doesn't get at the truth. 
The law established Israel as Yahweh's covenant son, and that sonship, faithfulness to that sonship, obligated the nation to live as a people fully consecrated, fully devoted to God, fully separated from those around them. And all who threatened or interfered with Israel's covenant identity and its life were to be regarded as enemies and dealt with severely, even to the point of death. That was Israel's Torah. So Jesus' demand in the Sermon on the Mount to his fellow Israelites isn't simply, he's saying, let me remove the rabbinical corruption and get you back to pure Moses. His own qualifying statement and certainly his explicit call for love for enemies without defining you are to love your enemies. You are to pray for those who persecute you, that you would be sons of your father. That was a shocking thing for him to say. To Israelites who are thinking, yes, we are individually and corporately sons of God. You're telling us something that is different than we've known. So it raises two questions then. The first is, in what way and with what right or with what authority was Jesus altering Yahweh's command to Israel that they are to deal harshly with their national enemies, even to the point of death? And Jesus faced this over and over again. Not just in the Sermon on the Mount, it kind of brings this this conflict, in a sense, to a head in terms of his teaching. But throughout his ministry, a common charge against him and a reason that his people rose up against him, his Jewish countrymen, was, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to, in effect, declare all foods clean? Moses gave us these commandments on Yahweh's behalf. What is clean? What is unclean? Who are you to say that what enters into a man cannot make him unclean? You're setting yourself against the God of Israel. We know who Moses is. Who do you think you are? And these, uh, it was said, but I say to you, it was said, but I said to you, are forcing them to have to rethink these things in the light of him and his own relation to Israel's God. And it was not an insignificant thing for them to have to deal with it. So what, how does Jesus take to himself this right to alter these things in this way? Apparently to alter them. And then secondly, flowing out of that, how should we as Christians understand Jesus' directive? Not just here, but in all of these ways in which he seems to be altering what God had given to Israel... How should we understand his directive and how should we apply it in our use of the imprecatory psalms or even in our imprecation more broadly? How should we think about calling upon God to bring judgment on our enemies and his enemies? Well, in terms of the first question, there is a very real sense in which Jesus was altering Israel's obligation as prescribed by Torah. But by his own pronouncement, that alteration was a matter of fulfillment, not deviation, denial, or abrogation. Think of how he began the Sermon on the Mount. He's sitting in front of his Israelite audience, and he says, when you hear me, 
Do not begin to say to yourselves that I have come to abrogate the law or the prophets. That's what you're going to hear. When you listen to me, you're going to say, who does this guy think he is to abrogate, to do away with, to disannul the law and the prophets? Do not begin to say that to yourself because I did not come to abrogate but to fulfill. And he doesn't mean fulfill in the sense that I didn't come to break the law or to say forget about the law. I came to keep every jot and tittle of it to do all of its commandments. Now, did he do that? Yes, but that's not what he's saying. It's not the verb terao, to keep or obey. It's plerao, to fulfill. Jesus is saying that I came to embody in myself and to live out the truth of Torah. If the Torah defined and prescribed Israel's life and vocation as son of God, he says, I am embodying that in myself. I am the true Israel. I'm not abrogating anything. I am bringing all of these things to their true meaning, to their ultimate significance, to their ultimate fulfillment. Fulfillment as ultimate realization, not legal compliance. That's not what he's saying. And again, the law demanded that Israel deal with its enemies in the most harsh way. At the very least, absolute separation, absolute condemnation in attitude and orientation, if not in actually taking lives. As those enemies threatened and opposed God and his purposes in the world. That's key. It wasn't go after your enemies that drive you crazy. As I said, this issue of lament and imprecation were directed, even in the Psalms, towards a zeal for God and his purposes and his intent, and in opposition in heart and in orientation to those things that contradict and oppose. Israel was God's chosen instrument for ultimately banishing the curse, for bringing creational renewal. And in that sense, opposing Israel was opposing God and his purposes, his intent for the world. That was the sense in which Israel was an imprecating people. And Jesus is not in any sense suggesting that Israel's God no longer was seeking or zealous for the destruction of his enemies. Jesus is not saying that. What he's suggesting in this thing of fulfillment rather than abrogation and saying, if you would be sons of the Father, here's how you're to be. What he's doing is in a tacit way suggesting this astonishing truth that nobody understood yet at that point, how it would play out, but that he intended to achieve that divine end of zeal in destroying God's enemies. He would achieve that end in himself. God's zeal to destroy his enemies would be realized in and through the son that he sent. Jesus isn't saying God is no longer concerned. I'm bringing a new God. The old God of the Old Testament wanted to just kill people. He was this zealous tribal deity that wanted to slaughter everybody. He had this bloodlust. 
but I'm the loving, gentle Jesus who just accepts everybody and everything and doesn't require anything. He's not saying that. He's what will become more clear and certainly at the end will become clear is that Yahweh was going. He was still fully committed to eradicating his enemies, but he would do that by eradicating all enmity. He would eradicate his enemies by eradicating all enmity. Yahweh was going to take upon himself in the person of his incarnate son, all human enmity, all human opposition within Israel and within the nations of the world and put it to death, thereby reconciling all things to himself. This is Paul's theme over and over again. God dealt with the hostility, the enmity, the opposition, putting it to death in his son, thereby reconciling all things to himself in the heavens and the earth. Banishing the enmity. So Jesus' directive in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. He wasn't denying or degrading or in any way nullifying Yahweh's zeal in his instruction regarding enemies. He's simply, in, in an indirect way, in kind of a mysterious way at that point, indicating the fact that he was himself as the one sent of the Father, as the Son of the Father. He was going to execute that zeal of God against the enemies. As God's true Israel, he would fulfill God's commandment to destroy his enemies by crucifying all enmity in himself. I want to read something for you from Thomas Torrance. I could not do that with Stephen Deb here. But listen to what he says. This, this, this is profound, but it's, it's crucially important to where I'm going with this. He says, so long as the relations between God and mankind are determined by the distance of ethical or legal relation, so long as God withholds final judgment upon humanity, the action of God upon man is primarily negative. That is, it is of resistance to human rebellion, opposition to human sin, and therefore rejection and disinheritance. Even though God in his compassion and mercy withholds final judgment, had withheld final judgment, nevertheless, because he is God, the just and loving one, because he cannot ultimately withhold it, mankind has continued or did continue under the threat of damnation and final judgment. Therefore, their own rebellious enmity to God is met by the threat of destruction a final judgment of utter rejection. But when, in reconciliation, God actually takes upon himself the sentence of rejection and bears it instead of mankind, then God takes all of his own righteous enmity against sin and absorbs it in himself. That does not mean in the slightest degree a mitigation of the divine judgment, but the very opposite. 
It's the complete and entire fulfillment of the divine judgment. And therefore, the vicarious act of God in the life and death of Jesus is man's complete and total exposure as guilty and complete and total judgment. The cross is the utter condemnation of men and women. But when God took that condemnation upon himself, then his action was entirely the positive action of his mercy and will to be on humanity's side, a positive action to accept humanity. In the cross of Christ, we have humanity's final rejection of God the supreme act of man's rejection of God. And in that cross, we have God's final rejection of humanity's sin. But in the cross, we have behind it all the holy will of God to take upon himself human sin in its rejection of God and to take upon himself his own rejection of humanity. So that in both ways, in himself, he makes the cross the most positive act of the divine love. The cross not only opposes the human will to isolate itself, to set itself independent from God, and so reject God, but, and, uh, but it takes that rejection, that refusal by humanity, it, it has God taking that upon himself such that God directs toward humanity the amazing act of assumption, assuming it in himself, in which in pure grace he gathers men and women in spite of their immense wickedness into fellowship with himself, and he refuses to let them go. The cross means that God does not let any positive decision to reject man fall upon man at all. That positive rejection he takes upon himself. And all that he directs toward humanity is the positive act of acceptance. And this positive act of acceptance, of free forgiveness, of gratuitous justification on the grounds of God's vicarious act, not in the slightest on the ground of human worth, is also the complete condemnation of humanity. Because it tells men and women that in themselves they have no worth. They are not accepted at all for what they are in themselves, but are accepted on the ground of the overflowing love of God, poured out unstinningly upon them, on the ground of the fact that God in his love chooses to take their judgment and rejection upon himself, in order that they may be gathered into the fellowship of the divine life. That, if you like, is the paradox of the cross. That the divine assumption of our judgment is our most complete judgment, and yet it is in no sense a rejection of humanity, but the very reverse, an entire acceptance of man for Christ's sake. Now, there's a lot in that, but it's profoundly true. And it's very important to the point that I'm making today that Jesus didn't in any way, by what he said and certainly by what he did, say God no longer sits in judgment of those that oppose him. God no longer is zealous to see his purposes and his will realized. God is no longer desirous of judging and condemning and destroying enmity. But somehow, in a mysterious way, at the point of the Sermon on the Mount, God is going to execute that in relation to me such that sonship will look like loving enemies and praying for those who persecute you.
So how does this then play out in terms of the second question? I said the first question is, what right and in what way could Jesus alter what the Torah prescribed of Israel? But the second question is, what does that mean for us? What do we do with it? How do we understand and apply this idea of imprecation, not just in the Psalms, but even in general? Well, understanding how Jesus fulfilled Israel's obligation of imprecation as son, in which and in that fulfillment, fulfilling both the scriptures and Israel's own existence, that understanding of how he fulfilled that is the key to understanding our relationship to imprecation. And at bottom, our relationship to imprecation is owning Jesus' work of imprecation. Owning his imprecation as sharers in him. If we are sharers in him, sons in the son, we are sharers in his imprecation. Whatever it means for us, it is what it is in him, right? Whatever it means for us, it is what it is in him. Because in him is the truth of of us. This is Ephesians 1 and 2, right? In him, in him, in him, in him. And that means that we own his condemnation and his destruction of all that opposes his father's purposes and work in the human race and in the wider creation. He is the one in whom all imprecation, Israel's imprecation, the imprecatory Psalms, he's the one in whom all imprecation finds its yes and amen. His life, his death, his resurrection fulfilled every longing in Israel and in mankind for judgment, purging, and renewal. What burdened the psalmist's hearts as it reflected the burden of God's heart, all of that, all of that longing has been realized in him. And so these psalmists, these men who penned these imprecatory psalms, whether they knew it or not, all of their passion, all of their zeal, their cry to God was a messianic cry. Their cry to God was ultimately the cry that would be taken up in the Messiah himself and brought to its climactic high point when he on the cross cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished. The cry and the burden and the longing of the psalmist who said, God, how long? When will you deal with these things that oppose and contradict and resist and pollute and corrupt? When will you arise and fulfill your word? When will you do what you said you're going to do? And that reached its apex in the Messiah himself. It is finished. So our imprecation is sharing in his imprecation and also sharing in the longing that still continues as those in him. As I said, we are still a lamenting people because we live in the context of a fulfillment 
of all things that hasn't yet worked itself out in a consummate realization. If you will, we live in an already but not yet state of God's renewal. We do not yet see all things subjected to the human creature, the writer of Hebrews says, in the way that God reveals what that was about. Psalm 8, you made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You set him over the works of your hands. He says, we don't yet see that worked out, ultimately consummately realized in human experience. But what we do see is the man Jesus made for a while lower than the angels now crowned with glory and honor. Jesus has won the victory that God promised. He has inaugurated the eternal kingdom of the new creation. What Israel's psalmist longed for that day We inhabit that day. We inhabit that day. And yet, we don't see all enmity, all enemies utterly eradicated. Paul says the resurrection of Christ is the first fruits of new creation. Christ, the first fruits, is raised. We who are his, it is coming. And then all things will be renewed and all things will be gathered up in the Messiah such that then the Messiah will bring it all to the Father such that God will be all in all. We're waiting for that. We're still a lamenting people. And so we're still an imprecating people. We're still saying, God, how long? Till all things are put right. How long till what you have inaugurated in the Messiah is fully realized in a new heavens and a new earth? Jesus has yet to consummate his triumph in the renewal of all things. And so we continue to worship God as imprecators. Jesus has yet to consummate his triumph, and he has triumphed, as Steve said. How did Jesus, what we call the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. There's the framework, the premise behind our mission. It's not, I'm going away, get on, do the best you can, do what you can, I'll be back someday. Jesus hasn't even gone anywhere in the truest sense. He's in the midst of his people. He's in the midst of his church. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He indwells and empowers and leads and develops his church through his spirit. But we do not yet see all things subjected to him in the way that we will. That triumph, which is a complete triumph, Raised, seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that's named in this age and the age to come. And yet, and yet. So we continue to worship God as an imprecating people. We live in a state of eschatological angst marked by the longing of fervent faith and assured hope. This is what Romans 8 is all about. Paul's talking about what it means to be sons of God. Go back and read Romans 8 again. Sons of God. And the climax of that is this angst of longing and groaning and waiting, right? 
The creation itself is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God because then it will be renewed in this work of the Messiah. But we too groan within ourselves, awaiting the redemption of our bodies, the perfecting of our own renewal. That's what sonship looks like. So in closing, as we we prepare for the table, all of these things, I want us to recognize that all of these things show that loving and praying for enemies, as Jesus said, defines true sonship, is in perfect accord with the nature and the orientation of the imprecatory psalms and imprecations scripturally in general. Jesus, in in a sense, there's an alteration, but it's not a changing or a dissociation. It's a transformation in fulfillment. The obligation to love enemies and pray for persecutors, opponents, adversaries, is in its very essence exactly identical with the scriptural notion and practice of imprecation, even as we see in the imprecatory psalms. They're in perfect accord. And the key to that is the fulfillment that has come in Jesus himself. Our imprecation seeks for God's triumph over our enemies. If we say our imprecation to God is crying out to him because of those enemies that oppose us or those enemies that in some way their enmity affects us. Our imprecation is seeking God's triumph over them as the outworking of Jesus' triumph in destroying all enmity. Our imprecation stands on the fact that Jesus has destroyed all enmity by his death. He put it to death And our imprecation is seeking for God to work out that triumph in the world as it still continues in enmity with him. We seek God's triumph over our enemies as the psalmist did, but not in the sense of seeking their destruction, but seeking the destruction of their enmity toward God. Not seeking their destruction, seeking the destruction of their enmity toward God and what he's accomplished in his son. So crying out to God for that destruction is longing to see people own the reconciliation that Jesus has effected. The reason I read that Torrance thing is because he's talking about the universality of God's intent and work and accomplishment. He has reconciled to himself the whole creation. And our imprecation stands on that reality. We don't seek people's destruction. We seek the destruction of their enmity, which is effectively them living a lie. They're living in a state of enmity with the God who has dealt with the enmity within the creation. If you will, they're still living in the matrix when there's a reality outside of that that's actually the truth. We're longing to see them own the reconciliation that Jesus has brought to pass. The creational-wide reconciliation that includes them, but remains unrealized in their experience because of their ignorance or because of their willful unbelief. 
In the end then, at bottom, our imprecation, if it is authentic, is exactly the same as the psalmist. It expresses our longing to see all things summed up in the Messiah. And so our imprecation is loving and praying for enemies. It's striving with people in person, in prayer, in our attitude, in our orientation, in our longing, towards the goal of seeing them attain the destiny for which they were created. That they would become true image children in the image son. Our imprecation seeks the destruction of all enmity. Christ has destroyed all enmity. We seek for men to enter into that. So for our contemplation coming into the table, I want to just read 2 Corinthians 5 with you. Listen to what Paul says in the light of what we've talked about today. He talks about this goal that God ultimately has and our role in that goal and how it even affects the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about our mission, the way we think about the world that we inhabit. He says, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, he's talking about our physical bodily existence, our bodies. If the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. A resurrection that we await. Indeed, in this house, in this body, in this life, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Not go to heaven, but to be clothed with the the, the consummate renewal that is kept for us in heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. Indeed, while we are in this skene, this tent, this tabernacle, we groan, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed. We're not seeking to be disembodied, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life, our bodies. Now, he who prepared us for this very end is God, who gave us the spirit as a pledge, as the promise that this is to come. The spirit who's made us alive in the inner man is the promise of this consummate renewal that we long for and await. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, we walk by faith, not by sight. And we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body, to be at home with the Lord, but in order that this ultimate outcome would be realized. But whether we, therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Because we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to be recompensed, each one, for his existence in his body. What has our life been? According to what he has done, whether good or bad. And knowing, therefore, the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. It's in view of this eschatological vision that we persuade men. We are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are manifest also in your consciences. As the Corinthians stood kind of in a state of distrust and and at odds with Paul. He says, we are manifest to God. I pray it's the same in your consciences. 
We're not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, that you may have an answer to those who take pride in appearance, not in heart. If we truly are beside ourselves, as you say, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for your sake. It is the love of Christ that constrains us, that that controls us, that guides us, that defines us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that they who live should no longer live as they were in and for themselves, but for him and in him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so now we recognize no man according to the flesh. What has come in Christ, the putting to death of the humanity that was known and existed before that. God has dealt with all of that. And so we recognize no man according to that old pattern. Even though we knew Christ in that way at one point, we know know him that way any longer. If any man is in Christ, new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And all of these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through the Messiah and entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation. And what is that ministry of reconciliation? That God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. And that's the word of reconciliation that he has committed to us. And so we are ambassadors for Christ, as if he is, God himself is entreating through us. We beg men on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God, be reconciled to the one who has reconciled you to himself has reconciled all things to himself. For this God made him who knew no sin to be sin, to embody this sinful humanity on our behalf, that we should embody the faithfulness, the righteousness, the the good accomplishment of God in ourselves. We are the testimony, the living testimony that God is faithful We embody in ourselves the faithfulness of God. We become that in the Messiah. That's our message of imprecation. That's what we seek in dealing with this world. That the world would come to know the God that has reconciled all things to himself. That God's purposes would be fully realized to sum up everything in the Messiah and become all in all. Paul says, knowing that these things are coming, our labors in the Lord are not in vain. That's the way he ends 1 Corinthians 15. Knowing this, know that your labors are not in vain. Be of good courage. Be of good courage. Let me pray and then we'll take a few minutes of contemplation and and personal prayer and then we'll we'll come to the table father these are profound things and they are profoundly good things they are profoundly rich things they are things that we don't think about very often they're certainly not things that we spend much time contemplating but these things are the very essence of the good news who could imagine Who could imagine a God whose love is so great that he would bear in himself his own judgment 
against the enmity of men, that he would bear in himself the fury of a creation estranged from him, hostile to him, that he would take that enmity and hostility and opposition upon himself and that he would put it to death in himself in the person of the incarnate son. Father, how good you are, how profoundly merciful you are. And you have trusted us with this word of reconciliation. We are the living proof of it. I pray that as we embody it, that we would be testifiers of it. And Father, as we come to the table, we come to a table that according to your design was given in the context of the Passover, the liberation, the deliverance, the ingathering that Jesus affected in himself. And we come to the table as those who recognize that he is our life, that we are sharers in his death and his resurrection and the renewal, the new creation that is yes and amen in him. It binds us to you everlastingly. It binds us to one another everlastingly. What a glorious thing. Father, may we come in truth. May we come as people who worship as lamenters and as imprecators. People who long for and cry out for the day when all things are put right. when the whole creation becomes consummately and everlastingly the dwelling of our God in Christ, by the Spirit. We love you. I pray that you would teach us to love you all the more, that we would love you in spirit and in truth, in faithfulness of heart, faithfulness of mind, in zeal, in commitment, in persevering faith. All these things we ask of you in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.